Well, it's one of the most popular books of all time. It's 300 million copies sold worldwide. It's been translated into 75 different languages, from Azerbaijani to Welsh, and even dead languages like Latin and Greek. There are college courses and SGA clubs devoted to the subject. Its devotees um, blog about it. They make pilgrimages to sacred or special sites, and they gather for annual festivals. The book has even spawned a new religion. Of course, the book that I'm referring to is Harry Potter. (laughs) You've heard of it. Good. Um, In the United Kingdom, where uh, the Harry Potter stories originated, Harry Potter is more famous than James Bond. He's more famous than the Beatles. He's even more famous than the Prime Minister. According to a fairly recent poll, 96% of, uh, of Brits recognize Harry Potter's face, right? And of course, right, that most noticeable feature of, on his face, that lightning bolt scar. I don't know if you know the story behind the scar, but Harry Potter got it when he was 15 months old. And when he was 15 months old, Lord Voldemort comes to Harry's house. He kills Harry's mom and dad, and he tries to ki- uh, kill Harry as well. But the killing curse backfires on Voldemort. Harry survives the attack, but he bears a scar. The scar serves as a reminder of his painful past, right? The death of his mom and dad. But as we come to know later on, the scar also links Harry to Voldemort in strange and mysterious ways. And it burns terribly, right? When Voldemort is closer, gaining in strength. But let's say for the sake of argument that you have been living under a rock, right, for 18 years, and you don't know anything about this, right? You, you've never read the books. You, right? There's some of you, right, raising your hands. You don't, you've not read the books, right? You haven't seen the movies. You don't know the story uh, behind Harry Potter's scar. That's fair, right? You're welcome here, too. Let's say that you, right, who haven't seen it, decide to go on Netflix tonight because you've heard about it and you want to sort of catch up a little bit. And you go and you find this movie, right? Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, which is book four in a seven-part series, right? If you were to turn that movie on, right, and you were to watch it just starting at the Goblet of Fire, right, book four in the series, movie four of seven, there's no doubt you'd be entertained. Um, there's a lot of action. Uh, but you would also probably be confused uh, as well. There's simply characters that you don't know action sequences that are hard to follow. What's up with Harry? Why is he bur- like grabbing his head? You know, Does he need Advil? What's going on with him? <laughs> this happens, right? When you enter into a story halfway through, uh, it's easy to be entertained, uh, but it's also easy to miss a lot of significant things right, that are happening. This semester, we're looking at the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is the third book in the New Testament. Uh, in some ways, it's sort of like jumping into the Goblet of Fire. Us doing a sermon series in the Gospel of Luke, sort of entering in sort of halfway through. It's easy for us to, um, if we're not careful, we're going to see some things that are really entertaining, right? See a lot of action sequences that will, you know, hold our attention. Uh, but it's also possible that we would miss a lot of the significant things that happen just because we don't know uh, some of the backstory. I don't want that to happen to you tonight or any night uh, of the semester. I don't want the significance of what we've read tonight to pass you by. Um, I want you to see what needs seeing and to hear what needs hearing, to feel what needs feeling and to know uh, what needs knowing. So here's what we're going to do tonight. We'll 
as we can sort of revert back to uh, the passage that we've heard read, we're going to ask and we're going to answer three questions that I think will really bring to light some important things uh, for you. We're going to ask the question, who's the kid in the crib? We're going to ask, what is he doing there? Why is he here? And thirdly, who is this good news message for that the angels are singing about? Who's the kid in the crib? What's he doing there? And who is this message of good news for? We'll throw in a bonus question at the end saying, so, so what? So, first question. Who's the kid in the crib? Though he's not named in the passage, um, the kid in the crib is obviously Jesus. Right? That's um, who is there. What is said about him in this passage is largely contained uh, in verse 11. Put that up there. Verse 11 says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The first thing that we learn about the kid in the crib is that he is a Savior. Now, Jesus' name means as much. Yeshua, as his mom and dad uh, would have called him, is actually two Hebrew words joined together. Yah, for Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Shua, which comes from the verb yasha, meaning to save or to rescue. So Jesus' name is, or Yeshua means Yahweh saves, or the Lord rescues. From the cradle to the grave and then to the empty tomb, this is who Jesus is. He's, on a, he's a man on a mission. He's the Lord on a mission to rescue, right, to save the world. It's the first thing we learn about the kid in the crib, right, that he's a savior, But secondly, that he's the Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Jesus was not born to Joseph and Mary Christ. Christ is a Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. You could also translate it the promised or the anointed one. Now, this word Christ is like one of those clues, um, like Harry Potter's scar, that if we were to trace it, would take us deep into the backstory of the Bible, as far back as Genesis 3, which so happens to be the passage that we're looking at in small groups this week. Let me give you some of this backstory quickly. Right, Genesis 1, page 1 of the Bible, we see God speaking the universe into existence. Everything is in its right place, doing what God designed it to do. It is good, it is good, seven times it is good. Genesis 2, page 2 of the Bible. Human beings, male and female, are made in God's image. We're made in the image of God for the sake of imaging God. We are creatures specially created to to know God and to show God, to reflect his heart and character to the world around us. And we do that for a time. It's good. We live in a right relationship with God. We live in a right relationship with each other. We live in a right relationship with the world around us. Then comes Genesis 3, page 3 of the Bible. God's good and beautiful world gets invaded. A snake shows up, the devil in disguise. He whispers a lie inside Adam and Eve's ear. God isn't good. He doesn't love you. He's trying to withhold good things from you. You're better off without him. Take your life into your own hands. Eat that forbidden fruit. The snake's poison enters into our bloodstream, and it contaminates our heart. We bide the lie, the snake says, And we act on it. We take matters into our own hands. And everything begins to fall apart. 
everything begins to break. Our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship with the natural world around, all of it, right, ruined. Now, for a minute, it seems that this story is going to be a short one, that this is where the story ends, that all is lost, but it's not, because God shows up. He pursues Adam and Eve, who are in hiding. He clothes them. He makes a promise. He says to the snake, it's on. It's war. It's going to be your kids versus mine. But you listen to me, he says to the snake. Someday, a kid is going to be born, an offspring of Eve. And this kid is going to grow up into a man. And this man is going to crush your head. He's going to defeat evil once and for all. However, he's going to get wounded in the process. He's going to crush your head, he says to the snake, but you will bruise his heel. And the rest of the Bible, from Genesis 3 on, is the unpacking of this promise. Who is the promised child of Genesis 3.15? Who is the rescuer? Who is the Messiah? Who is the Christ? Who is the one who's going to defeat evil once and for all, but get wounded in the process? Now, as the Bible progresses, God drops hints and clues as to who the promised one is going to be. It's going to be a child of Eve, sure, right? But he's going to come from the line of Seth, her third-born son. He's going to be a descendant of Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob. He's going to come from the kingly line of David. He's going to be a prince of peace and a good shepherd, too. He's going to be a wise counselor. He's going to be a suffering servant, a man of sorrows. And as the Old Testament draws to a close, we're given one final clue. In addition to all of these, seed of Eve, seed of Abraham, seed of David, the Messiah will also be, strangely and mysteriously and remarkably, none other than God himself. That's how the Old Testament ends. All of us are left scratching our heads. How can this be? Who can this be? Right? Who is this one who's going to be human and also God himself? Well, cue the angels in Luke chapter 2. Because hear what they're singing. They're saying, for unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ, the promised one, the Lord. The kid in the crib, according to the angels, is not just a Savior. He is the Savior. With a capital S. He is the one promised to defeat evil once and for all, but get wounded in the process. He is the one who's going to reverse the curse as far as it is found. Right? He is Christ the Lord. This is the third thing we learn. He's a Savior. He's the Christ, but he's also the Lord. He's God incarnate. Now, this is something that Christians have always maintained. That the kid in the crib is not just the son of Mary, but he's also the son of God. That he is God in the flesh. That he has always been, right, God of God and flesh of flesh. One person who's fully human and fully divine at the same time. This is kind of where our brains explode. We have a hard time computing how Jesus can be fully God and fully man. 
in much the same ways that we have a hard time understanding how light can both be a particle and a wave at the same time. That doesn't seem to make sense, and yet it's true. Right? Just the fact that it's hard to comprehend doesn't make it untrue. It just makes it mysterious. You know, for what it's worth, even Mary is puzzled about sort of the situation. When an angel tells her that she's pregnant in Luke chapter 1, She answers, how can that be? I've never had sex before. And the angel tells her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And he concludes his speech with some important words, I think. In the end, he says, look, Mary, nothing is impossible with God. I've always liked that, right? Nothing is impossible with God. As we put a period uh, on this first point, right, who is the kid in the crib? I want to call attention to what one commentator says about these opening chapters in Luke. He says, and I quote, there's no evading what seems to be the exotic elements in the story thus far. Right, angels, predictions, Miracles, they're an intrinsic part of the gospel because it concerns a supernatural break-in to our world. End quote. Right? It's precisely what's going on in our passage tonight. God is breaking into our world. The creator is entering into his creation. Shakespeare is stepping into his play. I don't think anything could be as dramatic as this. It's awesome. The kid in the crib is Jesus, the Savior, the Christ, the Lord Almighty, fully God and fully man. But if that's who Jesus really is, what on earth is he doing lying in a manger? If Jesus is the Savior, the Christ, and the Lord, what is he doing in a feeding trough? Well, the most obvious answer we see in verse 7 is because there's no room for them in the inn. Since there's no room for them in the inn, Jesus is born in a barn, and he's laid inside a manger, right inside a feeding trough. Now, you would expect, perhaps, that God would skip this step, that he would skip sucking his thumb and pooping in diapers, right? You might expect God to show up a full-grown man, looking like the rock, riding on a rhinoceros, right? (laughs) Wielding thunderbolts, right, in his hand. That's what you might expect, but that's not how this story goes. (laughs) The creator enters his creation as an infant, the firstborn son of Joseph and Mary, a poor teenage couple. Mary is pregnant with Jesus before her wedding day, and you can guess easily how that went over. And no doubt, Mary was the talk of the town. And she was the subject of public scorn and shame. She's pregnant. She's not married. And her husband's a carpenter. He's not a wealthy man. And when Mary and Joseph present Jesus at the temple, they can only afford a pair of pigeons as a sacrifice, which was the cheapest available option. It turns out that the kid in the crib is no crib at all. It's a manger. It's a feeding trough. 
It's where food that looks and tastes like garbage gets slopped. Jesus is practically born outside to a bunch of outsiders. And this is how the Lord of the universe shows up on the scene. But if this is how God enters sort of stage right, what is he doing there in the first place? Why break onto the scene? Well, verse 14 has our answer. By coming in small, we actually see how great God is. By entering small, we actually see how good, right, how great God is. That's the first part of the answer. But the second answer is that God has come to bring peace. From Adam to Eve to the present moment, each and every single one of us has tried to live life on our own terms. We've all done it. We're all doing it. Right? Our rebellion against God and our self-serving ways has inflicted incredible damage to God, to one another, and to the world around. Now, the nightly news and our own personal stories prove this fact over and over again. The brokenness out there, the brokenness in here, right, proves the point. It's a war out there. It's a war in here. But God has come to bring peace. God has come to bring peace. There's something wonderful to this story. It reminds me of this magical moment in the movie Mary Poppins when um, Bert, the chimney sweep, draws pictures on the sidewalk and then he jumps into the pictures. Right? That has always been my favorite part of that movie and it will always be right? my favorite part of that movie. Right? We have something akin to it here in the opening chapters of Luke. The artist with a capital A jumping into his artistry. It's amazing. It's awesome. But there's also something dire going on in Luke 2. Luke 2 is not all fun and games. Dancing penguins and carousel rides. Right? The reason why God is entering into the scene is because there's a fire that he needs to put out. He didn't start the fire, right? We did. God made a good world. We set it ablaze. But that's why he needs to enter in. Like a fireman dropping into a wildfire, he needs to put the fire out, and he needs to rescue his loved ones who are trapped inside. That is why the angels are singing. That is the heart of the gospel, which literally means good news. This message of great joy that they are delivering to the shepherds in verse 10. Right? We started the fire. God has come. He's come to put it out. We are doomed right, for destruction. Left on our own, doomed. right? But he has come to set us free. This is good news. But it begs the question, who's this good news message for? Who's this message of good news for? Of God's rescue. Of his salvation. Look at verse 10. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, look, I bring you good news, gospel, 
of great joy that will be for all the people. Who is this gospel for? It's for all the people. It's for everybody. It's for people who got high last night and drunk over the weekend and who are having sex with their boyfriend or girlfriend. God has come to rescue those who have anxiety and depression, who are addicted to porn and addicted to alcohol and addicted to their smartphones. God has come to rescue people whose parents are divorced, who've been sexually abused, who have an eating disorder. God has come to rescue people who are gossips and they're cheats, who are terrible roommates, who leave dishes in the sink and who never ever take out the trash. He's come for them too, right? God has come to rescue the kids who were picked last for dodgeball, who sit alone in the cafeteria and who feel like they have zero friends. God has come to rescue the popular kids who are slaves to other people's approval and who look down their noses at others and think that they're too cool for school. God has come for all the people, right, for all kinds of persons. And just to prove his point, who are the first persons that God delivers this good news message to? that he sends his angel ambassadors to? The first persons that God delivers his gospel to are a bunch of poor and poorly educated shepherds who live outside at the margins of society and who probably haven't bathed in weeks. They are outsiders. They are unclean. They are unwell. That is the first persons who get the gospel message. So what? Right? So what? What does this mean for you and for me? Right? How do we apply right, Luke chapter 2, these opening passages to our lives? What difference would it make if we did? Hear me. The good news that was preached to the shepherds that night of the inbreaking of a king, a savior, the Christ, the Lord. It is the same news and the same good news that is preached to you all tonight. Right? God has touched down to earth. Right? He has come on a rescue mission to save all the people, all the people, including you. So what will you do with this message? Will you ignore it? Will you just downplay it? Or will you do what the shepherds did? Will you go and check Jesus out? I want to encourage you to do that tonight in the semester. I want to encourage you to go to where Jesus is. You're not going to find him wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger like those shepherds did on that night. He's grown up since then and he's moved on from there. But here's where you are going to find him. You will find him in his word. You will find him as we read and discuss the Bible together. You will find him on Wednesday night fellowship, you know. You'll find him here on Wednesday night fellowship. You'll find him in small groups. 
You'll find them at the local church. So go to where Jesus is. Right? Check him out. See if he isn't who the angel says he was. For some of you, that's simply where you need to start. You just need to go and you need to check him out. But for others, there's a next step. See, after the shepherds go to where Jesus is, they talk to others about him. They talk to Joseph. They talk to Mary. The news that was shared with them, they share with others. You see, they don't keep the gospel, right, this good news message to themselves. Some of you in this room are convinced, right, that Jesus is the Savior, that he is the Christ, that he is the Lord. I have a question for you. Right, who is one person that you can share that good news with? Who's one person that you can invite to come and see? Hey, come check Jesus out. Is he not the Christ? Right, draw others in. Allow them the opportunity to see what you see and to hear what you've heard. Finally, I invite you to do what the shepherds did in the end of this story, which is really to stand and to sing. Because they leave, right, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them in verse 20. Because look, if what the angel says is true, if Jesus really is the Savior, if he really is the Christ, if he really is the Lord, if he has come to save the world and he's come to save the likes of you and me, this is the best news that you've heard all day. It's the best news you're going to hear all, all week and all month and all year. In fact, it's the best news that you're ever going to hear. As a friend and fellow campus minister of mine likes to say, the best thing that is ever going to happen to you has already happened to you in Jesus Christ. The best thing that could ever happen to you in your life has already happened to you in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the Christ. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. He's come to bring peace. He's come to rescue all peoples. So check him out. Draw others in. And let's praise him. That's what we're going to get to do now in a moment. Before we do that, let's pray.